My name is Adnan Mahmutovic, and this is Love and Its Discontents podcast. It is a great pleasure to welcome today Dr. Paul Jawson, an assistant professor at the Department of Humanities, Social Sciences, and Communication at Lawrence Technological University. His research focuses on poetry and poetics, literary theory and criticism, modernism, and contemporary literature. His works include Writing in Real Time, Emergent Poetics from Whitman to the, to the Digital, and many essays and reviews. Dr. Jolson is also co-editing a companion to American poetry. He also co-directs the Humanity and Technology Lecture Series at LTU. Paul, I am so pleased to welcome you to Love and its Discontents to discuss one of my favorite classics, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's a pleasure to be here, Adnan. Thank you very much for the invitation. Oh, certainly, pleasure. Um, so I, I thought uh, we would start with um, the plot or the synopsis, if you could tell us what is this book about? Sure, absolutely. I mean, before I start, I would say it's one of those books that everyone knows, but not as many people have read. So often I think what the plot actually entails is a little bit surprising. Um, so it be begins actually with a series of letters uh, from a sea captain on an adventure who's uh, attempting to find a passage uh, across the North Sea. Um, his name is Captain Walton, and he's writing this letter, a series of letters to his sister who's back home. Uh, and he's an adventurer. He's uh, an attempt. He wants to distinguish himself in science and in discovery, uh, which is relevant for the um, you know the guest he ends up taking onto his ship. About three or four letters in, um, so as they're traveling toward the North Sea, they see this um, giant figure kind of crossing the ice, which surprises them. They thought that there would be no one out there. And then shortly thereafter, they encounter a man who's on um, a boat that's um, in pretty bad shape. He's, 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 he's almost frozen to death. He's very, very hungry. They bring him on, um, and he's, he's quite ill. But um, Walton is fascinated by him, and uh, he starts telling him uh, his story. The man's name is Victor Frankenstein, and he uh, then proceeds to, over several chapters, narrate uh, his upbringing, uh, his interest in what's called natural philosophy, which today we would call natural sciences, um, and his eventual um, discovery of what he calls the... the um, the, 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 the substance of life or the, 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 the secret of life, which was a big topic uh, at that time in, in scientific discourse. Um, as a result of this discovery, he decides to create a being, uh, a kind of oversized human. Um, he says that he creates him larger than normal proportions because it's easier for him to, to do the actual work instead of looking at all the sort of like fine organs that make up a human being. Uh, so he creates this being, and as soon as he brings it to life, he's absolutely terrified and horrified by it. Um, he, he leaves his laboratory, which is actually his apartment, um, and uh, eventually comes back with a friend named Henry Clerval, and uh, the creature is gone. And in discovering that the creature has disappeared, uh, Victor kind of collapses. He, 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 uh, the months of working on this project have left him in this kind of 
heightened and uh, enfeebled state. So he collapses. He's ill for quite some time. Eventually he recovers. Um, and then um, about 18 months later, almost two years later, he uh, gets this terrible news that his young brother has been murdered. Uh, he returns home to see his family um, and um, discovers not only that his young brother has been mur murdered, but a uh, young servant who has been like a member of the family, Justine, has been accused of the murder because she uh, had a, um, a, a locket that, uh, that, that was on young William's body uh, at the time of the murder uh, was found on her person. So in the process of Justine's trial, the creature, um, Victor um, is out one night and he sees this creature at a distance and he immediately says, oh, he must be the murderer. Um, so despite everyone's efforts to save Justine's life because they know that she couldn't have done this, even though the evidence points against her, she is tried and eventually executed for it. Um, Victor and his cousin, fiance, Elizabeth, we'll talk a little bit about their relationship later. Uh, they go to, to travel a bit to kind of recover from all this tragedy. And um, they're up in, in the Alps and um, Victor's out alone. And um, all of a sudden he sees this creature coming toward him, the creature that he's created. He recognized him because of his great size. He's extremely nimble. He can walk over the ice much faster than any other human being would. And uh, the creature tells him his story. Um, there's, there's, there's some conflict with, when, when, when the creature first confronts Victor, Victor says, you know, accuses him of murder and the creature, um, very eloquently, which I think is one of the first things that people who know the, the film adaptations don't realize is that this creature is incredibly eloquent is, um, has, it's kind of a master of language in a lot of ways. So the creature says, let me at least tell you my story. You, you owe me this. And then after I, you hear my story, um, then, then, then we can decide what happens next. So then for several chapters, the creature takes over the story and he basically tells what has happened from his perspective. Uh, a big part of that is his very, very early development. He sort of is wandering out in the world without friends, without anyone to, to nurture him. Um, slowly, he you know, discovers how to sort out his own sensations and his perceptions um, but he quickly realizes that he has this uh, horrific appearance. Um, in, in fact, it's interesting. One detail from the book that intrigues me is that early on, he tries to mimic birds because he hears the birds singing and even his own imitations scare him. His own sound scares him. So there's a sense in which he's aware of his own sort of ugliness and it, he, he registers it too. So as a result of his appearance, you know, other humans he encounters don't really like him. He figures this out pretty quickly and decides to take shelter in this tiny little, almost like a shed that he calls a hovel, which is attached to a cottage. And through chinks in the wall, he can um, see this family that's living in the cottage. Um, and eventually we learn that their last name is the DeLacy family. Uh, their story is quite complicated. I think for the sake of plot summary, I won't get into it right now because I don't want to just keep talking, but uh, they, uh, they've been exiled from Paris. The short version is they've been exiled for Paris um, after um, Felix, this, the adult son in the family, has um, uh, helped free this Turkish merchant who was unjustly um, uh, imprisoned, um, and his imprisonment was 
clearly seen to be um, due to bigotry um, against uh, against Turkish uh, against a Turkish merchant. Um, so his family is exiled. Uh, the father of the family is blind, which is an important detail because um, uh, the creature eventually learns language. He learns how to read, and he decides that his best shot at finding um, society, finding companionship, um, finding affection, love, is to avail himself to this family who he has come to really um, emotionally bond with, even though they, of course, don't know that he exists. Um, so he makes his move. He goes to speak to old man DeLacy while the rest of the family is out because he knows that he's blind and he won't be repelled sort of repulsed by his appearance. Um, and DeLacy says, I will um, sort of advocate for you, um, you know, to the people that you want to uh, attach yourself to. Cause he tells him a sort of a version of the story uh, the kind of I have a friend, so to speak, type of type of story, and um, but while they're having this conversation, the rest of the family sh- uh, appears, and um, they're immediately terrified. Felix attacks the creature, casts him out of the house, and the creature retreats back to his hovel. Um, and there's a really interesting moment too. He this he he rages. He's very very angry, and um, he kind of stalks off through the night. But then as morning comes. He says, you know, I, I decided that I was too hasty. He says, I, I decided to, uh, you know, make another appeal to them. And I realized that there still was a chance here. And um, so he returns with the intention of trying again. And uh, overhears Felix saying, we can't live here anymore. We have to leave. Uh, this creature was, this experience was too terrifying. My father is, you know, in dire straits because of this. And that's when he really has his moment of turning against humanity in, in, in many respects. Uh, he burns down the cottage and uh, had discovered in the clothes that he took from Victor's um, lab, uh, Victor's um, lab, lab notes, his lab journal. So he knows the story of his origin at this point. Um, and so he decides Victor Frankenstein is the only person in the world that who owes me anything and for whom I can make any appeal. So he goes to try to, to hunt down Victor. And uh, in doing so, he, um, as he's kind of approaching Geneva, where Victor's from, he stumbles upon what happens to be William Frankenstein, Victor's younger brother in the forest, and um, believes that, sort of pivots his plan and says, if I take this child who doesn't have bigotry or bias against my appearance, I could slowly cultivate them to be a companion for myself. Um, so that's, he at first attempts to kidnap William. Uh, and then William says, you know, my, my father is, uh, a magistrate, Monsieur Frankenstein, he's going to put you in jail. And as soon as he hears the name Frankenstein, the creature says, oh, you're the, you know, you're related to my enemy. And that's when he decides to kill William. Uh, he then tells Victor that he took the locket from William's body and, found Justine asleep in the, in a barn after she'd been out all night looking for William plants the locket on Justine's body and knowing that in fact, human beings are vicious and violent and unjust and that they will, you know, uh, accuse her of the crime. Uh, so everything that Victor suspected about the creature turns out in fact to be true. Um, at the end of his story though, the creature says, look, the, what 
is making me violent and vicious is the fact that I have no companion. I have no one to, to care for me to, to you sort of connect with in terms of like in bonds of affection. Um, make me a female companion and we will, you know, we will leave humanity behind. You'll never see us again. Um, he says, we'll go off to the wilds of South America. So there's a kind of colonial wilderness context in the story. Um, and so Victor agrees. Uh, and then there's a lot the plot moves pretty quickly after that in terms of Victor's traveling around a lot. He agrees to get engaged to Elizabeth, who uh, grew up in his household, but was actually his first cousin. Um, and then uh, Victor and his friend Henry go to England and eventually to Scotland. Uh, and there Victor um, sort of removes himself from Henry's company for a couple months and starts making this female creature. Um, the creature, uh, the creature is sort of watching him from a distance, sort of shadowing him this whole time. Um, and then in this kind of moment of clarity, Victor says, how do I know that this female creature is going to even like the original creature is going to, you know, um, fulfill his desires in fact, she might even be worse than he is and create more violence. So he destroys this female creature in, in, in the, while the creature can see. So like it's watching through the window. And the creature, of course, is extremely angry and says, I will be with you on your wedding night. So uh, we're getting close to the end here. Uh, Victor, in what I think is intriguingly one of the most amazing moments of like, missing it uh in the whole book like victor's a pretty savvy guy but he thinks that the creature's threat is against him so he arms himself and is prepared for kind of mortal combat with the creature on his wedding night he assumes he's going to be killed because the creature's so big and so strong um he's waiting in the room for the creature to show up and that's when he hears a scream from the back room and of course the creature has killed elizabeth not victor um Victor's father soon dies from the shock and Victor decides that the only thing left for him to do is to chase down this creature. Uh, and the creature is sort of, um, sort of complicit in this pact. He, he leads the Victor on. He, there's moments when Victor is uh, hungry and the creature brings him food. And eventually that takes them up to the North sea where we're back to where we started. Um, and um, Victor, finishes his tale and says to Walton, look, I know I'm dying. I'm, I'm not going to be able to, to, um, you know, have my revenge on the creature. Will you do it for me? Will you, if you find him, will you kill him? Uh, Victor dies. And then the final scene of the book is actually the creature in Walton's cabin on the ship. He, he appears and he's sort of mourning Victor and, um, sort of, it's his final confession where he says, you know, I didn't love to do, I didn't take pleasure in doing what I did. Um, my heart was knit for affection. Is, is some, he says something along those lines. And, you know, uh, rejection and solitude made me this way. Um, and then he claims that he's going to go and burn himself in the ocean um, and that the story will be over because they will both be dead. And that's the, that's the ending of the, of the story. So no Igor... No mobbing villagers, no like electrodes coming out of the neck, like so many of the things that are just like visually associated. The creature's not named Frankenstein, right? The creature is just referred to as the creature or the monster or the daemon. Um, so yeah, that was, I didn't mean to be that detailed, but I feel like there's all these small points that 
it's such a it's, it's in so many ways like a rich story even on the level of plot uh that i thought it was worth going into some of those Absolutely. And thank you so much for that uh, detailed synopsis because it, there, there's uh, quite a lot of things there to, uh, to look at. And I'm, I'm thinking, uh, so as you were telling us about the story, uh, what it is about, uh, you, there's a lot of horrible stuff going on. Uh, and, uh, this is also what I, this kind of prejudice against the book, or this, this these kinds of preconceived notions about, uh, you know, what it is about, that it's a horror story, it's a gothic, that there is a lot of murder, and uh, uh, there is a monster, there is a mad scientist, uh, all those typical tropes that we are kind of familiar with. And uh, when I uh, usually when I ask my my own students, for instance, to to look at it through the lens of love, I say, well, this is a love story. Uh, so, uh, it's not a horror story, or well, it is actually, but, uh, what if we approach it as a love story? And then you look at it and you see that the, that the word love is present on almost every page, which is really remarkable. So it's not just that it's dramatized in different scenes through different relationships, but also the word itself is repeated so often throughout the entire, the entire story. And as you said, in the end, the creature has this very kind of intellectual self-reflection. He is able to kind of diagnose himself, diagnose his rage and say, this is basically all I've done. The reason I am a monster is because I did not receive the love that I was supposed to receive. The love that was owned me as any other creature is old uh, love. So, so what, what do you think? Is this a love story? In, in which way is it a love story? And, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's such a great comment and an observation. I mean, it's a framework that I confess I hadn't uh, personally applied to the book, but I, as, as soon as you, you, you proposed this conversation, I immediately knew that, yes, love is everywhere. Um, and I think not only the word love explicitly, but also a lot of its um, synonyms or words that we would associate with it, right? Like passion, affection, um, friendship, um, when I teach this story, one of the very first things, uh, I ask my students to focus on is the, the framing narrative. Cause, cause I skipped over as details that summary was, I skipped over, uh, you know, there's, there's quite a bit of Victor's own family background in this story. And a lot of that hinges on love, hinges on love for a friend, um, love for, uh, a cousin, um, it, uh, the love that, that Walton has for his sister, um, whom we discover is, is a, an orphan that he and, and, and his sister is, is an orphan are orphans. Um, and, uh, and so I, 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 I used to call the phrase, I used to call it like weird family. I realize that's not exactly like, uh, I, I feel like that's a little too pejorative. So lately I've been interested in the way that like early on there's all there's so much emphasis on these kind of like unconventional kind of chosen families throughout the early part of the book um which i think speaks to 
how much this is a book about those kind of bonds, those love bonds, right? Um, and uh, in terms of, of, and then of course there's the question of passion, right? Like what passions drive Victor or drive the creature? Um, and that's where I think, I think that's what most people think of when they hear the word love story, right? Like some kind of, of, yes. of, of like compelling passion. And that's also throughout the, the book in so, in, so, in so many ways. Um, yeah, that's kind of where I would initially go with, with that. Uh, yes. What about you? I mean, where... where... Absolutely. And I'm thinking, I mean, one of the questions I asked myself to begin with, uh, first of all, I would like us to kind of list different kinds of love that there are in, in the book and uh, ask ourselves, well, why is Victor even trying to recreate a human being? Why is he trying uh, to, to create life? Where, where does that desire come from? And what is he trying to achieve? What, what is the, the, the kind of the driving uh, force uh, in, 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 in that endeavor? So I think it's a, I think it's, there's both a simple answer and a complex answer. So uh, I think, and I, I'll kind of start with the complex one and then get to the simpler one. You know, he says early on, um, you know, we're told that Victor's raised in a very, um, caring and also like intellectually rich household right he's the son of the the elite of geneva his father had distinguished himself in politics um was married later in life and sort of created this familial and then after he, he had children sort of dedicated himself to to their education um and in Victor's case, he stumbles upon uh well he said that natural philosophy had always been his passion so there's a sort of he has this temperamental draw toward science, but he stumbles upon uh, a book of Cornelius Agrippa when he's very young. And Cornelius Agrippa was an ancient alchemist. And by that point, even though alchemy still, I, re I learned recently alchemy still persisted well into the 19th century. We often think of it as just sort of being this medieval or Renaissance practice. Um, but by that point, Cornelius Agrippa was, was very much outdated. And there's this scene where Victor's father says, Oh, Victor, this is just trash. Don't, don't read this. And, um, and, uh, Victor says, you know, I wish my father had taken the time to explain to me, you know, why this is a problem, but he didn't. And so of course, when you're a kid and your dad says, don't do something, you're probably going to go do it. So that's so he keeps reading it. But I bring it up because I would make the case that Victor falls for Cornelius Agrippa, right? He falls he, he, like, because I think like, loving a book is also a part of this, this, uh, this, this novel. I mean, like the way that the creature will eventually learn to love paradise lost. So there's this kind of like, he, it's almost like he falls for, he's seduced by these, these, these alchemists and the kind of promises for, you know, the, the sorcerer's stone or the elixir of life. And that kind of like fundamentally shapes his imagination. And I think part of what Shelley's saying is that, you know, if it weren't for that, the later Victor, who eventually becomes a kind of master of modern science, might not have really done what he'd done, right? Like he might not have gone as aggressively or as far as, as he'd gone. So I think like love for a, an author <laughs> in one sense is one reason why Victor does what he does. But the other one is, uh, he says this very explicitly, that after he had discovered the meaning, uh, the origin of life, even though he knew that he couldn't bring back the dead yet, 
eventually he hoped that he'd be able to do that. And we know that just before Victor goes off to college, that his mother had died of scarlet fever, a, 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 a infection she contracts because she loves Elizabeth almost too much and goes into her sickbed before the threat of, um, uh, while she was still contagious. Uh, and um, so even though Elizabeth is young and healthy and recovers from the scarlet fever, she passes it on to Caroline, Victor's mother and Elizabeth's stepmother, and Caroline, and Caroline dies from it. So it's in many respects the oldest kind of, like you, your, your podcast title cites Freud, right? You know, love and its discontents. Uh, comes from civilization it's discontent at least that's what i hear and there's a kind of like it's like the oldest freudian story right your mother dies and you want to bring her back right so there's a sort of like and that's that's i don't know that's the way i think is really motivating victor in, in a lot of ways i agree absolutely i mean that is uh, uh you you pointed out these two different motivations one is the love of science and being seduced by these alchemists but the other is the very raw uh, primordial kind of love for the mother and trying to bring her back. That uh, you know, this this idea for me is like uh, that uh, uh, between love and death. Uh, that that love is kind of valuable because uh, it's not immortal. Uh, so it's 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 a, there is this attempt to kind of preserve love by beating death. Uh, uh, and uh, and uh, I I really love that bit. I think that kind of motivation is uh, is really amazing because that's what he pursues. And there is this family love, the, 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 perhaps the most basic kind of love uh, that is between a mother and a child, or the per- parents and children. Um, and I wanted to ask you: there is, uh, because you mentioned science, and you mentioned these. Uh, uh, in a sense, he is trying to give the gift of life to humanity. Mm. Uh, and that is kind of connected to the myth of Prometheus, which is there in the title. So Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. So I wonder if you can maybe comment a little bit on that. You know, what did Prometheus do? Why did he do it? And how is Victor connected to that myth? Yeah, it's a, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's also another part of the book that is passed over or people don't think about, right? Even though I, my impression is I'm not, uh, I, I'm not, um, I can't keep up on all of the comic book superhero movies, but I understand there's like a whole Prometheus series. So I think my students now are a little more attuned to Prometheus than maybe 20 years ago. Um, so, you know, Prometheus, the, the short version is that Prometheus is one of these guys, he was a titan. Uh, he's uh, kind of in the tradition of some trickster figures in the sense that he steals things, but he's also a craftsman. He's associated with the arts. And I always stress that there's kind of two versions of the myth that I think are really relevant here. The one is that in one version, Prometheus actually creates humanity. He, he forges human beings. So that was obvious parallels with what Victor does. But in the other one, the one that's better, sort of the version that's probably better known, Victor steals fire from the gods and brings it to humans. Um, and, Vi- uh, I'm sorry, Victor, Prometheus. Prometheus steals fire from the god, gods and brings them to humans. And um, Victor uses this language explicitly uh, when he says that um, 
you know, uh, going back to your life and death, he says, life and death appear to me as ideal bounds. In that sense, like, they're just ideas. And it, I would sort of, um, you know, this, I would send a new light out into humanity, right? So this idea that we no longer have to live with death, right? That would be sort of the, the human, that, that would be kind of like Victor as the Promethean figure who brings fire to the humans, right? Metaphorically and literally. But there's also the Victor who brings to life a new species, a new kind of being, right? And so there's this kind of dualism, it seems to me, in the Promethean figure. Um, of course, Prometheus is famously punished. Uh, as a titan, he can't die. So um, um, Zeus chains him to a rock. And um, every day this, this vulture eagle comes and eats out his liver. And every night it grows back. And then the next day, the, the, you know, the, the, the bird who's always like looking for an easy meal says, oh, I can come back and eat his liver again. <laughs> and so he, he's sort of like bound this perpetual pain, right? So um, what I like to tell my students is, is Promethe- what, what, when I sort of like unpack the myth with them just a little bit, I always say, so is Prometheus a hero or a villain, right? And it's, it, it really depends on, on whose version of the story you're looking at, right? Like for humans, he would be this somewhat sacrificial hero. For Zeus, he's, you know, violating the proper hierarchy. And so is a villain who must be punished. Um, so I think that that is a really important framework for thinking through our interpretation of the book. Because I... I resist the interpretation that, you know, the, the, the easy, obvious interpretation is this is science gone bad. And this is, this is uh, you know, what happens when you mess with the natural order. Um, the, the flip interpretation, the kind of more like, you know, slightly nuanced interpretation is, well, actually, Victor is neglectful of his creation. He's irresponsible. Like, this is all about his failures, his moral failures. And I, I just don't think that Prometheus gives us that easy of a way out, right? I think there's a lot more, more ambiguity there. Um, and the same way I think love is pretty amb- ambiguous, right? And I think that that's, there's a lot of characters in the book, including Victor, including the creature, who sort of flip their emotional position, right? And I think that as readers, we are caught in that kind of, um, we're sort of torn in both directions in our understanding of what's happening uh, with these characters in the story. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the way I approached the Prometheus part. But interesting, interestingly enough, I would also add, and maybe we can get into this, along with Prometheus, uh, Paradise Lost, which I've already mentioned, is, is kind of like the text that haunts the whole book and what's intriguing is the way those two kind of mythologies bleed into each other so where victor simultaneously and the creature sort of uh, identify themselves with both prometheus and with satan and that kind of like idea of of a figure that's punished for usurpation or for stepping outside of the bounds uh, i think is really interesting to me Absolutely. And uh, in both cases, you ask yourself, okay, why did they do this? So for Prometheus, you could say, okay, well, uh, if he's the creator of humankind, uh, then he owes the humankind to care for them. Uh, 
even if he is not, even if he only stole the fire from the gods and gave uh, gave it to the humans, that's an ultimate act of love for which he is punished. So, so in a sense, he suffers eternally for giving the gift, the greatest gift of life, of uh, in a sense, the gift that defines humanity, which is technology. So, uh, so fire is both love and technology, uh, which is really interesting here. This uh, uh, one is seems to be na- natural, and the other artificial. But I think Shelley is playing with this doubleness, as you say, this. Uh, what's natural, what's uh, man-made, and um, where is the danger and the moral responsibility. Because Victor doesn't care for for the creature. Uh, Prometheus cared for human beings, for instance. Of, of course, the Prada's loss is different, but that is where uh, the creature learns this uh, tale of the creation of Adam. Uh, so we see later on when the creature is presenting his case. He says, I am your Adam. I am your creation. So just the way God uh, cared for Adam or su- was supposed to care for Adam, so you should care for me or you should have cared for me. Uh, so there is almost like this natural, as you said earlier, bond uh, an implied bond, uh, something that that seems to be a default uh, relationship between the creator and and the created, and he calls that. He uses that logic. He's it's something he learned from books, as you said. You said earlier he's actually really well read. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes when I when I speak to people, I say, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I'm a teacher, you know, I have a PhD, and so so do you. But sometimes the creature seems more educated, and uh, he's read more than I have, uh, which is really weird because we have this sense of a monster who is just a brute, but he's really actually really quite well uh, well read and and quite uh, intelligent. Yeah, it's a. I mean, it's. His eloquence far surpasses mine when it comes to, like, my lectures aren't nearly that good. I mean, we know for sure he's read three books very closely. Um, and, but then there's also, so we haven't, uh, in my synopsis, just for the sake of time, I left out the story of Safi, who is the daughter of the Turkish merchant um, who comes to the DeLacy family while the creature's there. She and Felix are in love with one another. In fact, she was one of the, the implications that Felix, you know, was drawn to help the Turkish merchant because he recognized the injustice that was being, um, the injustice in the situation. But then when he meets daughter, he has a sort of positive incentive, which I think actually as we're talking is a fantastic sort of, um, moment where you have both you have the question of justice, which is the obligations that you're talking about, like the the, cre- the creator's obligation to the creature, and passion kind of intersecting right in that in that in that kind of relationship. So yeah, Victor. So um, Felix is educating uh, Safi, who doesn't speak French, which is how the creature is able to like get this education. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful kind of deus ex machina type of device, you know, from a literary yes. perspective that she sets it up. Um, but, uh, and it's clear throughout that the creature's intelligence is, 
far exceeds humans because just how quickly he can sort of accommodate himself to language and things like this. But I think your question had more to do with, uh, oh, I, the other thing I was going to pick up on is the, um, the, what you were, when you were bringing up the, the parallel to Adam, one thing that interests me about love in the story, and I think love as a, as a concept is where uh, these these elements of human society and experience where we think love either sort of spontaneously emerges like a parent for a child or is a kind of obligation like familial love, um, maybe love for nation, maybe love for God in a a religious context versus when love is this sort of um, free gift or something that kind of like happens to one unexpectedly is sort of excessive, right? It doesn't have to be there. Um, and, uh, what's, I think that you can kind of see both logics at work in the, in the story, right. In a lot of ways. I mean, Victor always insists that his familial and f- his familial love and the friendships he has, especially with Clerval are so, um, rich that, it never feels like an obligation, right? Like our family just wanted to be together. We just want, we just so enjoyed one another's, one, one another's company. Um, but the creature says, yes, you owe this to me, right? Like you're my creator. You owe this to me. Um, and he even says at one point, it seems to imply that he owes, you know, allegiance to Victor. Like I owe you something as well. So, um, yeah, I, I guess it's just uh, it's more of a comment than like a, 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 a real full blown interpretation because I need to think about it a little bit more. But that that um, play between the love that sort of arises out of um, necessity of, or some kind of necessity and the love that is sort of spontaneous, right, or that, that takes one 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 over, um, and that can be a, a kind of that's where I would argue Victor becomes the mad scientist. He's not mad with power. He's actually mad with this sort of like passionate drive to do this thing that's compelling him, right? Um, he calls it like enthusiasm, right? Like being outside of oneself, being compelled by something, uh, which I think is interesting too, because then we're talking about love for an area of study, a love for a practice, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. That's just that's another that's another way we can think about love as it's as it relates to these characters. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it seems to me that it goes in so many different directions. Uh, I, in a sense, all kinds of love can be listed as being present in the book. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I was really quite struck, for instance, by the way. Uh, love is used as also a justification for things. I do something out of love, therefore it's uh, it's good, for instance, uh, or that my motivation is love, uh, or that that's a good kind of motivation, uh, and uh, and whatever I do is kind of justified by that by that love. Uh, so uh, all the things that he does uh, yeah, are kind of driven driven by that. Uh, there is, but at the same time, there is also that sense, you know, when he is, uh, when the creature kills different people, uh, and you you showed this in your in your plot summary that uh, he is very 
uh, cunning. He is conceiving of this revenge in a very intellectual way. Basically, he's going to hurt people Victor loves. Uh, so in a sense, if I cannot, I cannot have your love, you will not have, uh, any love. So you will suffer, you know, hurting someone you love is, is a way of, uh, taking out revenge. Uh, so there is, uh, uh, for me, a very, uh, there is a sense of not just the kind of passion, uh, and, and rage, but very kind of pure reason. Uh, in order to conceive of this plot, the revenge plot, you have to be very intelligent. It's not, he's not just mad and just kills people. Rather, as you said with Elizabeth, you know, he is not coming to face, uh, Victor, but rather he hurts her in order for him to show him, uh, in, you know, this. Um, so I, I think it's, it's, it's an amazing kind of connection between, um, between love and hate here and how how that works but there's something else i want to ask you which is related to to the things you said especially uh, the, the part of the story where the creature is giving his origin story uh because he comes out uh as a kind of a tabula rasa uh in a sense he has no memory of a former self Obviously, he must have had uh, some, you know, someone's brain, right? Uh, so in the movies, there is this, uh, there is this comedy. I think I'm sure you know of it, uh, Mel Brooks's comedy, in which they give uh, the creature the abnormal uh, instead of the genius brain, <laughs> and so. Uh, but uh, but here, in a sense, he's uh, he has no memory, so he has no self. He has to create it from bottom. Uh, up, you know, uh, and uh, uh, as you said, he learns really quickly, so it's a very kind of natural intelligence. Uh, and I think what you asked when you what you said earlier, uh, where does love come from? Is it something he learned, or something that comes naturally from a very pure being, like this this pure natural being, uh, a new species? Because it's not, I'm not quite sure that the novel, uh, gives us a kind of a final decision on that. But that's, but still there is that question. Because when he says, you are my, I'm your Adam, that means he learned it from a story. But at the same time, he seems to have an instinctive sense or need or desire for love and recognizes what true love is. Uh, so, so I'm a little bit curious about this kind of nature, culture, and uh, what is the book trying to do with this? Yeah, so um, one of the things that I point out to my students uh, in those very early passages in Tabula Raza, I, you know, I'm not an 18th century scholar, so one could get into this. I, you know, people who, who study intellectual history more could talk about different nuances here, but I've always agreed with you. It's sort of this, this uh, kind of Lockean moment where you're born into the world. Um, there's, you know, you're kind of a blank slate of complex sensations, right? He even says, like, I couldn't t distinguish one sensation from another. Um, I, I do think it's still a powerful passage of, like, what consciousness's emergence 
might be like this thing that none of us can remember. Right. Um, but like being born into the world and having all these sensations and then having to kind of sort them out perceptually. Um, but one thing that's early in that when he's one of the results of the way she sets up the plot is that he doesn't really experience much at all that he can recognize as an experience until he's in a non-human space. He's out in, in the forest. And so it's very uh, Edenic in that sense, right? Like this sort of origin story in a non-human world. But very early, he does talk about appreciating beauty, right? So we might think about the relationship between like love and beauty here, the idea of like being drawn to something. Um, so there's a very kind of like natural in the sense of like, he, he didn't have to learn that. He just sort of like is drawn to the beauty of like the bird song or of the moon. Um, and he starts using the language of pleasure and pain to talk about these things. Uh, there's also that moment where he's like heating himself up by the fire, a fire that he finds the shepherd had left and then he like sticks his hand in the fire and it hurts. And so he's realizing the, you know, these two things are related to pleasure and pain, pain could be connected. Um, but there's this, but when he finally is in the, the hovel and observing the DeLacy family, there's a scene, actually, if you give me a second, I think you can find it really quickly in my copy. I, uh, there's this passage where he's just watching the family and he uh, sees uh, Agatha, who he will learn, eventually learns, is, her name is Agatha, Agatha and um, uh, weeping. And uh, she, she sees, uh, he sees her father, Alphonse, I mean, I'm sorry, no, uh, Mr. Lacey come and um, comfort her. And there's this amazing passage to me that I think is really gets to that tipping point of where does love come from and um, where, how do we feel it? Okay, so I'll just read this. I'll just read this one passage. Um, so, uh, oh, the, the, He's, Mr. DeLacy is playing guitar, so there's also music here, which the creature links back to the, the bird song. So he played a sweet and mournful air, which I perceived drew tears from the eyes of his amiable companion, of which the old man took no notice, until she sobbed audibly. He then pronounced a few sounds, and the fair creature, leaving her work, knelt at his feet. He raised her and smiled with such kindness and affection that I felt sensations of a peculiar and overpowering nature. They were a mixture of pain and pleasure, such as I had never before experienced, either from hunger or cold, warmth or food, and I withdraw from the window, unable to bear these emotions. I find this a really remarkable passage because what she's essentially doing is, it's like she's recreating the scene of like emotional intelligence, right? Where he's experiencing this combination of pain and pleasure that is really relational and interpersonal pain and pleasure, right? Because I, I always say to students, the pain is in one sense, he's identifying uh, with uh, the, the young girl's weeping. So he recognizes her pain, but then he sees the comfort that the father's providing and that that comfort is also a kind of pleasure, right? It's a, it's something that he identifies with. And he doesn't even understand, it overwhelms him, right? He's like, I had, to, I had to pull myself away from the scene. I couldn't, this was beyond what I had ever had before. But he's, he's starting to grasp it, right? And so it's this kind of, 
um, triangulation, right, of the fact that in relationships with other human beings, we can have pleasure and pain simultaneously, right? Like the, the act of being comforted when you're hurt is a very distinctive, it's very different than never having been hurt <laughs> or just being hurt, right? So it's this, it's this, it's this, and that's only possible because of other people, because of the existence of other people. So I, I would, uh, it's not really an answer to your question because it's clear that the creature's kind of emo- what we call now his, his emotional intelligence needs examples, but quickly acclimates those examples, right? I, I, you know, I love pets, but I always say, my pets don't do this quite the same way, you know, my family does this, or like even a stranger does this, right? So there's this, this capacity for that um, interpersonal attunement, which becomes a weapon when he starts killing off Victor's loved ones. Right. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, you're, you're quite right. So he learns so much from that scene. Exactly. Uh, it's almost like doing a, um, a close analysis, a close reading of a real life scene and just abstracting quite a lot of knowledge from it, as you, as you say. Uh, it's, uh, it reminds me a little bit almost like uh, some... Um, something platonic, almost like finding form in the examples or extracting or abstracting forms or the ideals or ideas of love, compassion, uh, care, uh, pain, pleasure, all those abstract notions from these concrete situations, which he was able to, to use later on. Uh, so that that's quite fascinating, as, uh, as you say. So it's, at, at the same time, there is this learning from observing but also there is a recognition of something that's already in him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so in that sense, maybe it's a little bit platonic that this recognition of the form that you already um, know of. That you have inside of you. That you have inside of you. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting too. I mean, it's... Shelley doesn't do a lot with the idea of like embodied inheritance right like the brooksy and like what brain does the creature have um um a later writer shelly jackson has this digital retelling of um of frankenstein called patchwork girl and it's kind of like a feminist reimagining of the text through a digital media and she um explicitly like sort of like imagines this sort of embodied knowledge that the creature might have inherited uh through the donors, right? Like the kind of like the hands of a weaver at one point, like his hands can do certain things. Um, So that's a, that's a fascinating. We could update, I don't know this now I'm well beyond my, my area of expertise, but you know, you can update kind of embodied, like think about love and embody knowledge and like, Mm -hmm. like the way, um, desire comes out of these sort of like early physical, tangible experiences, right? Yes. That, that, that's, that would take us in a different direction. Um, mm-hmm. But it is ex- exciting that uh, that she uses love as the center of this uh, discovery of knowledge, of uh, being, of selfhood. So love becomes kind of central, like a catalyst for all the other things to to converge. Uh I mean, how he discovers, for instance, who he is. What kind of a being is he, for instance? 
So the the question of selfhood and loving himself. How does he learn to that he is supposed to love himself? For instance, uh, is he supposed to love himself, uh, or is he only supposed to be loved by others? Um, so so what does it even mean for him to be, a, as you said earlier, a different species? Uh, uh, while just being a composite of different body parts from different people. Yeah, and uh, and and at the same time, you know, it's interesting because he he you earlier said that you earlier mentioned his sort of rationality, and I think he he's he can be incredibly rational. Um, but I do think there's something like drive, right? Like in the sense that like he feels almost imprisoned by these drives to to essentially have recognition right to be to be recognized not necessarily for a particular accomplishment but just simply to have love to have affection to be cared for right um it's it's really intriguing too because i'm i'm always um I haven't thought through enough the role of sexuality in the book because he asks specifically for a female companion, right? And it doesn't seem to be a primary motivator for him elsewhere, right? Like he, like he says, I'll, you know, at one point, you know, when he pivots and says, well, I can take this child and, 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 um, you know, because he's so young, he hasn't, uh, developed prejudices against my appearance. And eventually I could teach him not to be prejudiced and then I would have a, a friend. Right. So it's, it's, you know, in one sense, it's the, it's paradise lost. He's going back to Adam and Eve. In the other sense, it's sort of like the nor the coupling that he's seeing through other relationships in the text, whether that's um, Felix and, and Safi or Victor and Elizabeth. Um, so it's, but it doesn't, it, it's, he doesn't talk about, that right it doesn't talk about it being like the need for erotic love so much as it just just some kind of intersocial bond right that is that is sincere right that it, that, it, that it is that is that is reciprocated um so yeah that's a, that's another like uh I, I, you know I mean, i'm really so i'm glad that you that you uh, brought this up because it's something it's something of a conundrum that i uh, that i think of if you start from the beginning at the scene that you that you painted with uh, the um, uh, the guy on the ship uh, basically desiring a companion he's writing in his letters to his sister that he desires a companion uh and throughout the book as you say, the the creature desires just someone who, to lo- who will love him as he is, just the way the blind man uh, loved him, without kind of regard of, of his um, for his looks. So he was not uh, frightened by by the by the creature's looks. So it, it becomes really weird that he, in the end, asks for uh, a mate in a sense. Uh, for for a for a female companion, and something I tend to ask my students is, uh, how does he know that he's heterosexual? Right, <laughs> exactly. Uh, because it, obviously he's observed different couple couples, uh, and he is he's deriving from that. Okay, well maybe I need to have a female uh, because that's the norm. Uh, but that's as you say, there is a kind of an absence of the eros, of the erotic, of the sexual desire. 
Uh, and for me, that this is why that that kind of ending is is really interesting because when he asks for this companion, uh, he uh, there are two things. One, he wants someone who will be like him. So a creature that is of his species. Uh, so that's one thing he understands that that he cannot be loved by a different species, rather it has to be someone like him. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing for me is really interesting, and that's uh, that Victor's reaction, if I remember it correctly, is he imagines uh, monster sex and monster babies. Right, exactly, exactly, exactly. So he's like, this is horrible. What is this future going to be like if uh, there are all these monster babies and I cannot conceive of the monsters having sex? Right, right, exactly, exactly, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's he, he's he's disgusted by the very idea of two creatures having sex and having these these babies. He could just as well create this female without a womb and, and so. But no, he's, he's he destroys her just on the off chance that she might bear children. Absolutely, yeah, 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 absolutely. My my students bring this up all the time because they're always like, "Come on, he's a scientist. He knows how this works. You know, this is not an inevitability." Um, and and I don't I don't recall. I mean, it would it would be a strike against his case, so he probably rhetorically would not bring up the the chance of offspring. But the creature never mentions that as his desire, right? It's not like he wants a population; he just wants one one person, right? Um, so, I, but I have I have another theory. So I, I would agree. I think there's sort of it's his models again. What books does he read, right? Um, although, sorry, I just a thing that comes to mind. I always tell my students about the opening um, book of Paradise Lost because it, you know, a big part of Paradise Lost both tells the story of Adam and Eve, but it tells the story of Lucifer of Satan's fall. And there's that amazing moment where Satan wakes up in pandemonium with all the other fallen angels, and he sees their appearance and says, you know how must I look now that I see you who were so beautiful, the sort of like creature of like light and, and glory, like so being so, you know, um, ugly and hideous and horrific now, right? Like I can only imagine how bad I look, but the creature points out that Satan was better off than he was because even when Satan was exiled, he had companions, Right. And these are not eroticized companions, right? These are just sort of like friendships. These are sort of, it's like a troop of, of compatriots, right? So he does have models for like non-heterosexual fr- companions. Um, but most of his models are heterosexual companions, right? Adam and Eve, you know, Felix, the family. There's a lot of discussion of family. But I, one twist I would, I would bring to the narrative too, many commentators point out that there's a lot of parallels between Victor and the creature, right? Um, these sort of inversions, these doublings, these these uh, mirrorings. And I, I do follow um, the French philosopher René Girard when he talks about the notion of mimetic desire, which is to say that we desire what other people desire. So there's this kind of doubling effect. And so the fact that, you know, the creature asks Victor for a, 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 a female companion and the fact that that 
the, the, that Victor creates that companion after he's been engaged to Elizabeth, right? It's as almost as if the creature is seeing Victor's happiness and wants it for himself, not because of a kind of overwhelming um, primary urge, but almost like a secondary urge, right? He wants some kind of, it's like he's modeling himself after what Victor has in, in some kind of way. And so I think, and that of course is then why he can invert it and recognizes that the, the, the best revenge for not getting the companion he wants would be to kill Elizabeth, not to kill Victor himself, right? So I think there's, it's a whole psychodrama in so many ways, you know? I, I absolutely agree. It's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. There is this, uh, th- th- this is why I mentioned this learning from watching, learning from observing, learning from reading, whether we get this sense of how love and companionship and all these things actually work, where do they come from and how do we know what's right, what's wrong? And, uh, uh wh- how do we know that, uh, it's, um, uh, it's right to love in this way and not in that way? Uh, uh, and uh, and I I love this doubling of desire as you say he learns to desire uh, so so desire it was almost like not natural but rather we learn that oh to imitate it yeah. uh, so I think uh, earlier when we when we spoke about uh, just generally about the desire and so on and not in the, this podcast but when you and I uh, conversed you mentioned this uh, scene in uh, I forget which movie it is where there is a woman watching a train passing by with all these scenes taking place in uh, in different windows in different uh, carriages exactly yeah yeah it's um and I know about it because um, Slavoj Žižek uh, in, has a documentary where he comments on that film as kind of a meta-cinematic moment where he says, we go to the movies to learn how to desire things, right? Um, and I think uh, I used to always joke when I was younger, right? Yeah, we learned how to kiss by watching TV, right? You see people kiss on TV and that's, 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 that's how you do it, right? Uh, no one teaches you this but art teaches you this, right? Um, so, you know, which speaks to why, you know, there's been this long history of people being anxious about desire in art, right? Um, and, you know, what I think is really fun and illuminating about reading Frankenstein as a love story, as you've proposed, is exactly on this question of reading because I, I, I personally see reading as being a, uh, both a, like a, a joy and a, and a danger or, um, to use another French philosopher, it's like a pharmacon, right? Which is the Greek word for, that is both poison and cure. And so on the one hand, reading is so important to, to Walton. He talks about reading his, his uncle's books, uh, to Victor, to the creature, but at the same time, reading alone is dangerous, right? Reading without the kind of testing of other people can send you down these somewhat um, uh, deadly or problematic paths, right? So there's this there's this interesting sense in which you know the book is is also about education. It's about like how do we educate ourselves? How do we learn things? Not just intellectually, but emotionally and erotically and relationally. And um, yeah, so be careful what you read, right? You know, that's partly that's part of the. I do think that's part of the 
what 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 this book is about. Mm-hmm. Yes, Which of course is interesting because it, it, you know yeah. I, I I will confess I think it's I think the first time I read Frankenstein probably was the later edition where she revised it really heavily. And um, in most of our teaching and scholarship now, people teach and read the 1818 edition because it's a lot. It's a lot more. Um, uh, well, it's a lot less apologetic for Victor's kind of like challenging of nature. Whereas the the, the later the, the revision, it you know there's kind of a backlash to the character, and she she sort of tones down Victor's final reflections and sort of makes Victor feel more repentance and, you know, basically say we shouldn't mess with nature. We shouldn't like take the role of God. So, you know, she herself kind of saw, and she grew up in a family where there was a celebration of dangerous books, right? Her parents were intellectuals and kind of political radicals. Um, Mary Wollstonecraft was really one of the first robust feminist writers to like publish an entire treaty on the rights of women. So, you know, I, I, I think she is aware of this kind of pharmacological dimension to books. Oh, most no, no, certainly. And in, in a sense, it, uh, it's, it's a really great note to kind of wrap up our uh, discussion because we bring us back to the, the question of, um, as you say, art, because we are, we are in the period of romanticism and they very much paid attention to what art does. And as you said, education and dangerous books and art is, in a sense, dangerous. At the same time, it's also good. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so, so this is why I also prefer that uh, earlier raw uh, manuscript, uh, because the more you polish it, in a sense, the more you're trying to kind of um, remove these rough edges. In a sense, it's like it's like an intellectual. Uh, intervention and you're trying with your more experienced eyes uh, to to come back to your to your work. Uh, this is something all of us authors, uh, we, we, uh, the writers know this that if you go back to your earlier work, you, you you maybe want to edit something out and you want to revise it, but a lot of times that would kill that raw energy which constituted the story with all its problems uh, of uh, craft, of uh, plotting, of uh, uh, characterization and all these things. And this is why I love this book. Uh, in a sense, as you say, maybe uh, maybe this is why we are teaching it, so we don't spend too much time alone with it. Right, yeah. Uh, we don't want to be alone with this this book or any book, as you say. It, it uh, Spending too much time with it, 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 it will drive you crazy. You mentioned, uh, uh, you mentioned Victor's love for the books on alchemy and so on. So, so I think this is really a beautiful kind of uh, connection back to what the, uh, how the book uh, draws attention to itself as form, as uh, uh, art, as uh, uh, human creation, because there is a kind of a, a parallel between the creature and the creation of the book that is the monster that Shelley created, in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's a monster that still haunts us. I mean, so many you know centuries later, we are we are still teaching this book. We are still reading it. It still haunts us. We haven't left it. You know. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think on that on that note, I mean, two things I'll say as also kind of a, a wrap up gesture is that um, the uh, the haunting I think is 
equally special or, or like what, what compels me about the particular haunting of this book is that kind of raw, um, I mean, it certainly was edited, but there is this kind of uncraftedness to it because mm-hmm. so often our um, uh, conventional stories about books that last, about classics, is their kind of like mastery, right? Like they're masterpieces. And I think that this is not a formal masterpiece, but it's an imaginative work of genius, <laughs> right? Yes. And that that's yes. what allows it to continually kind of speak to us because it, yes. it, it, it's, it's been the reason, I mean, even though there's all these misconceptions in popular culture because it's been translated and tr- repurposed so many times, I think it's precisely because of that imaginative genius that sort of underpins it. And I'm not, I'm not, de- I'm not denying Shelley's capacity for craft. It's just that that's not really what is, intru- that what, what, what pulls us back to the book, right? It's this, it's, it's all of the energy that, that, it, that it sort of is, is engaging with and all of the ideas aesthetically, intellectually that are not just of its time, but of our sort of, I think are like the ideas of modernity, right? I mean, in, what, in so yes. many ways, the, as long as we're dealing with that kind of the human as the technological being, as you mentioned, this book is going to be something that, that, that speaks to us. And then the, the second thing I was thinking of is that, you know, this conversation is a great example of at least the pleasure of talking about the books, because this is how we, you know, in, in so many respects, what we're doing is exactly what Walt and, and Victor and the creature probably needed or, or wanted, but couldn't always have. And the results are not what, you know, are not as, as robust and as life-giving as they could be, which is why I think it is important that we continue to teach and discuss and have these kinds of conversations about books. Yes, I absolutely agree. And this was such an amazing pleasure, Paul. Uh, thank you so much. I mean, we could, I think, uh, from uh, the way this was going, I think we could have spoken for another hour or two hours or 10 hours. We could have gone on into the night. And you can see, you know, here in Stockholm, uh, the the October darkness is uh, settling in. It's coming and uh, it's, it's only um, 3.30 right now, but the darkness is coming really soon. So oh, I think yeah. we could have almost gotten into this mood of uh, speaking the darkness maybe around the fire maybe if we had some kind of a image of a fire between us in this podcast uh, that would have been kind of uh, like a special effect <laughs> yeah, uh, but I, I kind of wanted to fill it during the day so that uh, we have a little bit of light maybe a little bit of the autumnal autumnal leaves behind me and and so on so well uh, it's the same here we here in michigan we uh last night was the first uh, snow warning of the season. We didn't actually have snow, but it's it's cold and gray here. Uh, so, yes, it's autumn is definitely coming, uh, which is a, a good time to revisit this book. It's a very good uh, time. It's a very good mood for uh, for this book to be revisited. Paul, thank you so much again, and I hope uh, down the line we can uh, uh, come back and talk more about uh, other books, other stories, uh, more about love. I don't think we. Uh, have exhausted this subject or uh, all the books that we love. Definitely not. Thank you so much, Adnan, for this invitation. I, I, it was this equally a pleasure for me. Thank you.